This is episode 153 of Shades Midweek. You're joining us for the first time. This is a podcast where we discuss and talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. We do this inside of Three Stream Studios, which is here at Shades Valley Community Church in West Homewood. My name is Joe Mark DeRoe. I'm one of the worship pastor here, and I am joined, as usual, with Brad being out, the one and the only, Jonathan Hafes. Jonathan, spring break is upon us. I know, man. It's coming, and I'm I'm not doing anything. I'm staying here. So you're staying here. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're not doing anything big either, are you? Well, my children don't really have many <laughs> plans. Let's put it that way. Uh, half of us have plans. No. Ashley's mom and stepdad are coming down from Wisconsin. While uh, while we are going to be headed to Jamaica, what? Jamaica, that's right. yep, that's right. Yeah, we're going away. No kiddos. Actually, a lot of our neighbors are going on the trip too. This is like a big group trip. Uh, we all booked the same resort, and we're going for five nights. It's going to be a lot of fun. Sandals, Ash- sandals, Jamaica. It's not sandals. It's uh, every a time you said Jamaica, I just get that scene from The Office with Michael yes. <laughs> sandals <laughs> in my head. Two tickets to paradise. <laughs> Pack your bags. Oh man, no, that's awesome, dude. I'm I'm so excited. So when do y'all leave? Uh, we leave on Sunday, so uh, Ashley and I haven't done a big trip like this since like 2014. Yeah. So it's almost 10 years since we've we've done a huge trip. We've we've been gone maybe like two, maybe maybe three nights away from the kids uh, since we had Moses. So this will be nice. It'll be a really good getaway. It'll That's be a lot awesome, of fun, man. I hope that I hope y'all have just an absolute absolute blast. I'm. Super jealous and can't wait to hear about it when yeah. you get back. We're excited to be spending our spring break that way, especially because it's been so cold here this week. Well, what in the world has happened? Third winter has <laughs> happened. I am uh, in my I'm in my puffy down jacket. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Well, we will have to wait a little bit to hear about Jamaica, but we don't have to wait at all to hear about James album of the week. James album of the. That voice. What a gift and what a treasure, kindred in the house of God. On this day, the Lord. My album of the week this week comes from various artists. The artist on the album is The Wood Drake Sessions. The album is called From the Valley to the Golden Shore. This is a, a kind of a compilation album. From what I understand, all the songs were written uh, by two gentlemen, uh, and there may be other various writers, but I know specifically these two are on every song. Uh, Paul Ranheim and actually a new acquaintance of mine, Kirk Sowers, who is the worship director at Faith Presbyterian here in Birmingham uh, as of like two or three weeks ago. Um, they just moved here. And uh, I actually had actually had coffee with him this past week, and we were just chatting about music and worship and all those things. He said, well, I put together a record, and I said, oh, dude, send it to me. And when I looked at it, I was like, oh, man, Sandra McCracken's on here. Liz Weiss <laughs> is on here. Leslie Jordan from All Sons and Daughters is on here. Mm. Uh, so this is a fantastic album that I wanted to make everyone aware of. It was released last year. I believe Kirk and Paul... Wrote a lot of these songs during uh, kind of the height of the pandemic when everyone was at home a lot. And especially for musicians, you weren't playing any gigs, you weren't playing much. So I know a lot of people wrote during that time period. And uh, this is the fruit of that time of writing. And it's a great record. It has a Nashville flavor to it, as you can hear. There's a number of good songs on here. I highly recommend this song with Sandra McCracken. It's called Oh How Good to Be Together. Uh, two other tracks that I really enjoy right now, Never Shakes, Never Will. Uh, that's my, my buddy Kirk uh, singing on that tune. And then I See a King by Liz Vice. Great, great, great song. So check that out, everybody. Check that out midweek. Let me know what you think about this record. From the Valley to the Golden Shore, The Wood Drake Sessions. Lovely. 
You told maybe, me about that the other day. I've been been spinning that a little bit. Yeah, and maybe uh, we'll we may be able to pull out some of these at Shades on a Sunday morning nice. too. So, I yep, love it. That's what's happening. That's my album of the week. I want to know what's happening in Birmingham. Well, you may want to know what's happening in Birmingham, but it's not going to be of any use to you, John Mark, because you're about to leave and go to Jamaica. Yep. But so Sayonara. For the, so for the rest of us who are stuck here, what's happening in the ham during spring break? That's what I got coming at you. What are some some options for all the peeps that are stuck here? And and I'm sorry if like this doesn't apply to everybody. I'm mainly aiming at at kiddos what's here for the the kiddos to do because for the rest of us it's just another week it's it's a work week oh but just a couple of things in case you are stuck here uh one uh spring break at the zoo which they don't have a lot of details listed as to what all that means or includes i just know they're calling it spring break at the zoo and there's animals there so go be a party animal with spring break at the zoo whatever that includes more explicitly, I do know about the activities happening at spring break at Oak Mountain State Park. So Oak Mountain State Park, you can go on their website and see they have activities planned every single day. They include things like crafts, a turtle encounter, uh, threatened animal species, talks and encounters, a fairy house building. I don't know what that is. I imagine it's similar to a birdhouse, but I could be completely wrong. But lots of like cool, crafty, and animal-type encounter things going on out at Oak Mountain State Park during spring break. But then finally, this one is my favorite, a little close to my heart, because it's where my wife works. My wife, for those who don't know, has taken on a part-time position at Action Martial Arts. It's part of the ATA organization, which is, you know, the American Taekwondo Association. But it's called Action Martial Arts. They have a Vestavia branch and a Hoover branch. My wife works at the Hoover branch. And they are putting on a spring break camp. So especially if you are a parent that has to work throughout spring break, you're like, I don't know what to do with my kids at all. Maybe your daycare shut down or schools are obviously out. So this is for K-5 through 5th grade, Monday to Friday, 7.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's obviously not free as no camps are free. I don't know what the price is. Um, but all you got to do is call the school, you know, call uh, Action Martial Arts at Hoover or Vestavia. Uh, they're going to obviously do Taekwondo uh, as a part of uh, these daily activities, but it's not all Taekwondo. They're going to have all sorts of arts and crafts and games and other sports and yada, 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 all the things that you would expect in a day camp experience. So those are a couple of things for those of you who, like myself, are stuck in Birmingham, Alabama. Don't be distraught. Even though it's spring break, there are still things happening in the ham. You know, I have been packing my bags a lot this week. I've been getting the packing list together, making sure that we have everything we need for our trip. But before I get my passport stamped and approved and Mm -hmm. all of that, I'd like to take a trip somewhere else, if that's all right with you. And I'd like for you to come with me, Jonathan. And I'd like to invite the entire midweek audience along as well. Let's take a trip down to the email corridor. corridor. All right, Jonathan, I see a couple of emails over on your desk. That's right. Physical emails. How does the email corridor do that? I don't don't understand technology but somehow we have the emails in physical format. Yeah, yeah. Which You want me to read both of these? Which one you want me to read first? Let's go with both of them. I actually have uh, two emails and a text. You know, every now and then a text tumbles in to the old email corridor. I don't know how they make it here. But so I'll start with that. This text actually comes from one Missy Litton. Now, I don't know how many of you will remember David and Missy, uh, who now are resident Montanites. Is that is that what you call people that live in Montana? I don't know. Montanians. Montanians. Holly and I actually looked up a list of what you call people from every state. There are some really funny ones. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they live in Montana now, but uh, we're a part of Shades and obviously still uh, keep in touch and stay connected in different ways, including listening to Shades Midweek. So I got this text today at 9 a.m. from Missy. And it says, petition 
for Annabeth Reese to be a regular co-host on Shades Midweek? I simply responded, I concur. Tell her to quit her job <laughs> so she can come to this. For I, free. I th- for free. I think this is this is more important. And But no, Missy, we could not agree with you more. Having Annabeth on, especially in person, was fantastically fun. And hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to get her back over this way a little bit more. I know that the positive reviews have been rolling in. <laughs> and Ashley DeRoe had a group text going with me and Jonathan and Annabeth after listening to Annabeth's meet a member. And she was just, uh, she just loved that episode. It was probably one of her favorite ones that she's heard. I just observed, I didn't even participate in that conversation. I just observed it. It was, it was hilarious. I looked down at my phone and I had like 50 texts all of a sudden. Yeah. She did a phenomenal job, Annabeth. It was great to have you here with us last week and, uh, we'll, we'll do it again. All right. Next, we have one from a regular email corridor resident, but haven't heard from in just a little bit, and that is Cassidy Ashley. All right. The subject, in all caps, so that I feel like I'm being yelled at, John Mark, is Taylor Swift. That's how I read that. It says, hey, midweek. Much much calmer in the actual body of the message. Hey, midweek. Just wondering when you're going to do your Taylor Swift episode. The people are ready. We wait with bated breath. I will only accept Liz Sturgeon as the expert, but I hope you can do it soon. Well, here at Shades Midweek, we tell you that you're a part of the conversation, and when you join in the conversation, listeners, we listen. We do. In response to this email, a text thread has been started between John Mark, myself, and Liz Sturgeon, and we are currently working on a date to record the Taylor Swift episode. I know everyone's excited. She's uh, she's her tour has started. I believe it started already. Don't yell at me, Taylor Swift fans, if I'm wrong. I was about to say you look the most excited about this episode, John Mark. I I am excited. It's going to be great. I'm ready to get outside the box. I'm ready to talk about Taylor Swift. I think having an expert resident in the booth is more than important, and I can't wait to hear what. Liz Sturgeon has to bring on this topic. And so we are looking at the month of April. We're looking at the month of April. So, and also a little fun tidbit is a newcomer to Shades. She's not a member, but Kenya Davis. I don't know if any of you listening know her. She sings on the worship team with us. She got Taylor Swift tickets and she has been talking about it. And she's very excited. She so. was, she was. We saw her the other day, and she was wearing a Taylor Swift cardigan. Which, when that was pointed out, I thought that just meant a cardigan that looks like one that Taylor Swift wears. No, this like has Swift's name embroidered on it, like it's like an official piece of merchandise. Yeah, I'm sure it is. People I'd, do buy band merchandise, Jonathan. I'd, well, I'd, but cardigans, <laughs> I've never seen. I've never seen a card. Did Weezer have a sweater to go with their Probably. song? Probably. I mean, everybody's doing, you know, Metallica has all kinds of things. Doormats. Doormats. Yeah. I, I Everything. Need, we need a Metallica doormat <laughs> for Three Stream Studio. It says Internight. Oh, my <laughs> word. <laughs> of course it does. Uh, well, yeah, oh. T-Swift episode. It's, it's coming up, guys, so get ready. All right. Well... We have one more email down here in the email corridor, and it is from another uh, email corridor resident, Tanisha Garnier. Miss Garnier, so good to hear from you. Uh, her subject line, uh, like Liz, not Liz, sorry, like Cassidy's, uh, is also in all caps. So once again, I feel the need to report it this way. Put some respect on Patty's name! <laughs> All right. Once again, I don't want to bring this up, but you're starting to sound like Will Smith when he got upset at the the Oscars <laughs> and started yelling at Chris Rock. That's oh. <laughs> oh my word! I'm I'm not even going to comment. Oh, I'm just going to move just, on. Let's just move on. So, uh, just context: uh, if you didn't hear the other week uh, in Happening in the Ham, we talked about Patti LaBelle's uh, concert that took place here in Birmingham and Patti LaBelle. Uh, we talk about every Christmas on the show because of the infamous Where My Background Singers At video. Right. And <laughs> and outside of that video, John Mark nor I have exposure to Patti's music, and we said as much last week. Right. And, and so this is in response to that. Once again, the body of the email is much, 
much calmer. Mm-hmm. Patty LaBelle shall not be slandered. I literally just paused the pod to make y'all a YouTube playlist. And this is in quotes as things that we said. What's her hits? Does she sing covers? It's a legitimate question. Here comes small caps. So everybody get ready. My brethren, she is the one who is covered. Patty walked so Christina Aguilera, Maya, Lil' Kim, and Pink could uh, do whatever they were doing in that Lady Marmalade video. (laughs) Crazy smiley face. Click the link and get schooled, boys. And she gave us a YouTube link to her playlist. Warmest regards, T. Have you clicked the link yet, John Mark? I I looked at the list of songs. I did not realize that she wrote lady marmalade uh i think that's how you say it i remember when that song came out it was a part of the moulin rouge movie right Um, right i i remember so funny funny thing about that song the first place i remember encountering that song is do you remember the movie beethoven like about the saint bernard dog did you ever see that so there's a scene that involves a babysitter an old lady babysitter and she is playing a song at the piano and it's lady marmalade Okay. She's playing that song. And that was prior to Moulin Rouge. And so when Moulin Rouge came out, like I knew it was a cover, but I didn't know it was a Patti LaBelle song. Well, I'm excited to dive into <laughs> Patti LaBelle's discography now, I guess. John uh, Mark gets so excited about all these recommendations. You know, Taylor Swift, Patti LaBelle. I mean, that's, you know, I recommend a lot of stuff, so it's only natural that people are going to recommend things back. They don't always want to hear from me, and I get that. Oh. Uh, I do not represent the whole of. <laughs> The world and Music their dumb. musical tastes. Oh, um, well, Tanisha, we appreciate, uh, to, all, to everyone who, who wrote in, we always appreciate it. We love it. Even even the pushback emails or the, like, boys get in line emails. We love it right. all. We love it all. Um, it, it makes us smile and laugh, and we love the participation. And, Tanisha, we will. I have not clicked that link yet, but I fully intend to listen to the entire playlist uh, that you sent us of Patti LaBelle, and I will report back. Um, my thoughts. I 100%. Shall. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's enough of our gibberish. We got a special interview for you, and we will just play it for you now. We've got a very special interview for you on this episode of Shades Midweek. Uh, in the house with us is a former professor of mine who I'm now supposed to call Carl. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Beckwith. You didn't know we had a live studio audience, did you? They're wonderful. They're wonderful. <laughs> oh, I'm probably going to go back and forth between calling you Carl and Dr. Beckwith because it's habit and I can't break it. I blame my parents. They raised me with Southern manners. Titles are a thing. I prefer Dr. Beckwith. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Carl, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Just, I mean, people here at Shades obviously probably don't know who you are, what you do. I am... Uh, currently a professor at Beeson Divinity School. I teach in what we call history and doctrine. Uh, my area of specialty is patristic, medieval, early Reformation, but especially patristic, doctrine of the Trinity uh, type stuff, Augustine, Cappadocians. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's about you professionally. How about a little personally? I, Where are you uh, from? I'm from Michigan. I grew up in Michigan. I've lived in a lot of different uh, places, but I've been here at Beeson for 16 years, so I'm very much, uh, in some sense, a Southerner. Love Birmingham. <laughs> love the food. Uh, I'm also Lutheran, so I serve as an associate pastor at Trinity Lutheran in Hansville, uh, Alabama. Previous to that, I served at Hope Lutheran here in Birmingham uh, as the sole pastor. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big baseball fan. Uh, so I'm excited that uh, the baseball season is about to uh, to kick off. I don't know how I went through Beeson and never figured this out. I knew that Dr. Matthews was a big baseball fan, but what? Who's your team? The Detroit Tigers. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, that's okay. We all we all have to uh, bear our cross and, and deal with disappointment in life. And uh, oh yeah, uh, the oh. Lord has blessed me by making me a Detroit Tigers fan. There you go. There you go. Well, awesome. And family. I have uh, a wife and two daughters. Uh, one daughter is currently at Samford. The other daughter will be enrolling at Notre Dame in the fall. And my wife is at, uh, she works at Altamont here in town. Gotcha. Notre Dame, your alma mater. I went to Notre Dame as well. Yeah. Uh, I have always wanted 
to be able to go back in time and see you who are very Lutheran uh, in context of a lot of Catholics. I've just always, I just want to hear a lunch table conversation. I, you know, so I taught uh, for two years at Notre Dame. So I, during my doctoral studies and then after I was a visiting professor for a year, uh, and I taught their Introduction to the Bible course, which all first-year students have to take. It's a great class. Uh, and as you say, everyone is mostly uh, mostly Lutheran. Here's the story that I always tell, that one of my students, he was a brilliant student, had gone to a Jesuit high school, great, uh, great training, had never read Paul's letters. And so we, uh, the assignment was Galatians. They read through Galatians, and he came into class, is. and he, uh, he said, I had no idea that Paul talked about justification by faith. I thought, I thought only Luther did that. And I said, well, I said, no. In fact, you know, Paul was Lutheran. <laughs> and this is why he too is talking about justification by faith. But isn't that something, right? I mean, you know, right. something that uh, we, we sometimes forget about is how we, we read Scripture. Right. And we can have, we're going to talk about the canon, but we can have a canon within the canon, the mm. books that we like to read. Right without reading those other books. Yeah. And that can skew the way we think about the whole counsel of God mm. and what God is teaching us. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, like you said, we have asked you to come to talk about canon because, I mean, the formalization of the canon of Scripture took place during the time period of your early ex- of your expertise, the patristic period early on. Um, and, uh, and we're doing a series here at Shades right now just about a doctrine of the Word of God. And one of the first sermons that I preached in it had to do with the reliability of Scripture. And we kind of really dug through two questions. Uh, the first question that we dug through was, how do we know we have the right words? You know, the words that the original authors gave us. And that's where we talked through kind of your classical textual critical issues and all of those kinds of things. Um, and then the second question is, how do we know they're God's words? which we really came at it from more of a, I know you're a big John Calvin fan as a Lutheran. Um, we came at it from more of a self-authentication uh, of Scripture um, angle. But with regards to that first question, one of the things we didn't have an opportunity to address uh, is the issue of canon. You know, How do we know that we have the right books in our Bible? Because clearly there are other books you know, I have Catholic friends who include the Apocrypha within their Bible. You know, I hear stuff on the History Channel or Discovery Channel about Gnostic Gospels, you know, and uh, and kind of the popular level conception of canonization uh, I, I found to be just a little bit at odds with what I learned in first semester of History and Doctrine at Beeson. And so we wanted to, to bring you on to maybe answer some of the kind of common questions that people have. Mm-hmm. about the canonization of Scripture, the process by which we got the Bible as we have it yeah. today. So I guess we could probably just start out by just why do you think this is a important topic, period, just for Christians to know about the canonization of Scripture? Well, let me... Let me let me take one step back before I answer that. Okay, uh, we're going to correct things I've already said. Well, the, <laughs> there there is a sense, there is a sense in which... When we talk about the canonization of Scripture today, we seem to have in mind, in a sense, the Bible that we have before us, that there's something of a closed canon, that these these books that are in this Bible, now, as you say, if I'm Roman Catholic, I'm going to have the Apocrypha in my Bible. If I'm a Protestant, probably not. Uh, and we tend to think, well, you know, maybe that went back to the early church. That's not quite what back to the early church. The idea of a closed canon, if that's even the right word to use, is in some sense the product of the Reformation. Mm. And there's a sense in which the Council of Trent in the middle part of the 16th century, which is responding then to the Protestant Reformation, establishes what the Roman Catholics view as the authoritative books of the Bible. Mm. And if you recall from your Reformation class, what's interesting is they identify the Vulgate, the Latin translation as the authoritative translation of Scripture, uh, version of Scripture, but they also then include, as we would think of our Old Testament and New Testament, also the Apocrypha. Mm -hmm. The Lutherans, interestingly enough, have no official canon list from the 16th century, which it doesn't mean that they didn't talk about the books that belong to that canon. So when we think of uh, the Bible today, as we, we normally think of it as a closed canon. That's how people would be regarding it. That really is the product of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. 
you don't have that in the early church. What you have in the early church are identifiable lists of books, and we can talk a lot more about this, that are authoritative. And it's on the edges, we might say, where there's going to be a little bit of disagreement. Mm. Uh, And we can get get into that in a minute. But why is that important? Well, it's important because everyone recognized that God's Word is a special authority in determining what we believe, teach, and confess, how we live our lives, and so forth. So there's always been great interest in understanding what those books are. And probably the best way of putting that is, again, to say there's really no dispute on, let's say, 90% of what those books would be. But there are a few books that uh, you would find a little bit of disagreement, and then that you would find a few books that are just beyond that so-called canonical list uh, that some thought highly of, but others were very clear they don't belong. Now, we can get into why some are in and why some are right, not. Right. Uh, but it is the case that, you know, as early as we can find, you might say, in the writings of the early church, they recognize that the scriptures, the writings are authoritative in a way that other books are not. Why? Because this is God's word. Yeah, that's awesome. What, what, what do you think, you know, you just went into kind of at least one of the common kind of mischaracterizations of the process of canonization. What do you think are some other common misconceptions or mischaracterizations of how we think about the process of, of the canon of Scripture? Right. So if you were to ask me as a patristic scholar, if someone were to come up to me and say, could you tell me uh, what is what are the canonical Scriptures? And normally people are talking about the New Testament. So where is the New Testament canon, and who decided that in the early church? When you put it in that way, most people are going to answer by looking to various documents or canonical or not uh, uh, council decisions from right. the fourth century where we have a list of books. Well, a list of books, that's a very formal thing, right? And so you could find that. You have very famous uh, list from Athanasius. That's probably our earliest one in the middle part of the fourth century. Uh, it appears in a letter that he would circulate. It's called a festal letter. It's for Easter. It tells people when Lent is going to be, when the date of Easter. Nobody today has any idea when the date of Easter is, so they need a calendar or they need someone to tell them. <laughs> Athanasius would do that for you. And right. in one of these letters, he lays out a list of books, and it, it looks like our New Testament. That's basically what he's, he's giving to us. You have other uh, lists by different writers. You also have different councils in the 4th century producing a list. They don't all match 100% but they mostly match. So it's very, very small things on the edges where they might disagree. As an example, um, some we're not sure about Revelation. Uh, Is Revelation part of the canon, or is it maybe just a helpful book that we can read, but maybe not as authoritative? Some people had questions about uh, 3 John, Right, these so there's some of the smaller pieces, but nobody questioned the Gospels. Mm. Nobody questioned Paul's letters, for example. Everybody recognizes the authority of, say, First John and First Peter, um, but you'd have some disagreement on the edges. Well, if that's how you ask the question and the answer you get are canon list from the fourth century, you can then get this misunderstanding that somehow the church, in a very formal way, gave to us the canon of Scripture. Mm. Uh, That's not what happened. No one in the early church would have thought of it in that way. Mm. So one way is to look at the 4th century canon list. A better way to look at the formation of the canon is more dynamic. It's more the life of the church itself, and it's to look at the writings we have from the church fathers and how they're citing books of the Bible and how they recognize an authoritative book of the Bible, because they'll call it that, you know, Scripture says, or it is written, and they'll then cite the Scriptures. Well, if you do that, now you go back to the second century. So now you get a lot closer to when these books and letters were actually written. And for me, the way I teach this in the class, I typically use Irenaeus, uh, and he wrote a work around the year 180. Now, he's not the earliest, but he's he's the most helpful, I think, for answering this. And if you read through his very long work called Against Heresies, which is a great, great book if, uh, if someone wants to dig into it, 
you can, in book three, chapter 18 to 22, you will find a beautiful reflection on the atonement and on the saving work of Christ for us from this very early writer in the second century. So if you want to read something by Irenaeus, start there. That'd be a very good place. But if you read Against Heresies, again, it's very long. It's in five books. And you say, what books does he cite as authoritative? You discover that he cites every book that we have in our New Testament except Philemon and 3 John. That doesn't mean he didn't regard those books sure, as authoritative. Sure. Uh, if you're familiar with them, they're pretty short. You know, it's, it's hard to always determine, is that a citation or an illusion? But we have clear citation from everything in the New Testament except that. Now, Irenaeus also uh, cites a work that's not in the New Testament and regards it as authoritative. It's called The Shepherd of Hermas. It's one of these books that's kind of on the edges. Some people thought of it as authoritative, but generally, the only thing they're citing looks like the Shema. That's the only thing they're really citing out of The Shepherd. Mm. Uh, And it's, uh, like I say, it's one of these books on the edges. But for me, if you looked into Irenaeus, and there's a lot going on with Irenaeus. He's arguing against a person named Marcion who's undermining right. uh, the authority of the Gospels and other works in the New Testament. Uh, you can see that at least by 180, we have a clear sense of the authority of what we recognize as the New Testament. Mm. Uh, and Irenaeus is especially famous for his reflection on the fourfold Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and that's really being written against Marcion, who only wants a truncated form of Luke, right. wants to get rid of everything else. But the way Irenaeus talks about the four Gospels, it's not an argument for their authority. It's an argument that assumes everyone knows that we have four Gospels. Now, if you uh, you made mention of your, your fandom of the History Channel, and that <laughs> maybe it's where you get some of your theology, I don't know. Uh, but if you do watch these these channels, right, or especially around Easter, they love to talk about these other Gospels. Right, the Gnostic right? Gospels. So we'll get the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of, of Judas, and so forth. Uh, and, and people generally talk about them today as a way of undermining mm. the authority of the Bible as we have it. All of that stuff was known in the early church, right. and it was explicitly rejected. Mm. Uh, now, why did they reject it? I don't know if you want to turn to that. Uh, that'd be sort of a different question, but they had the reasons for rejecting them. Uh, for starters, what they were teaching was not what we found could be found in the authoritative Gospels. So typically the Gnostic Gospels, as an example, undermine the incarnation and the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, they also were not recognized by other churches. Churches were already saying, well, these aren't authoritative Gospels, and this Irenaeus talks about this, that this is yet another way in which we can see what belongs to our canon and what doesn't. Uh, and there was this sort of dynamic voice within the church, as Irenaeus puts it, sort of everyone everywhere, they know that's not authoritative, and that is authoritative. Mm. So what it sounds like you're describing is kind of this uh, this difference between a very organized way of conceiving of canonization in a very organic way or a top down where it's like the church councils and such making decisions and all of that, or more of a bottom up out of the Mm -hmm. life of the church. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, it is. And what you see in the fourth century then, when you finally get to the point of, of publishing list, now, why is it in the fourth century? A lot of that has to do with Constantine and the toleration of Christianity. Now that Christians can publicly gather without threat of persecution, they begin to write on all sorts of topics. And one of the things they're writing on are the books that are authoritative in the scriptures. So it's not as if they discovered this in the fourth century. They really are giving witness to what everyone has thought in their minds for a very long time. These are the authoritative books. Mm. It's the more organic process that certainly happened in the second century. Uh, and you know, even early on, some of our earliest writings by Ignatius of Antioch at the beginning of the second century, he's citing different works. Now, not as many as as uh, as Irenaeus, but we don't have a lot from Ignatius. But he's using the Gospels. He's using Paul's letters in an authoritative way in his writings. It's that organic way, as you put it, of seeing well, what do they cite, and how do they use it as a way of telling us that's an authoritative writing, that's scripture for them. Yeah, I think one of the most um, popular ways I hear uh, canonization um, mischaracterized and weaponized 
uh, often is it's it's this idea that it was done uh, by church leadership uh, as some sort of like power grab, basically as a way of shoring up their own authority. How 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 do you respond to someone who comes at you with kind of like that? narrative. Well, it is a uh, sort of a, a popular apologetic move that I tend to hear from Roman Catholics that will say, you know, you Protestants value the authority of Scripture, but it's the Church that gave you that Scripture. Uh, now, that argument probably works for those who dabble in Church history and don't really read any of these sources, but uh, that's not how Athanasius is thinking about it, or Augustine, or Gregory of Nazianzus. These are the figures that give us these these lists, or even these councils. It's not the church that gives us the authoritative list. Now, if if that were true, the problem we would encounter is the list don't match 100%. Right. Uh, so now, what does that mean? Does that mean we have different churches identifying different lists? No. It, again, it means that, you know, for the most part, they're all recognizing these books as authoritative. Some people are not so sure about Revelation or Third John, uh, and so you kind of find them a little bit on the uh, on the edges. But uh, you don't have this idea of the church speaking to this particular question in the way, for example, that you have, say, a Council of Nicaea or the Council of Constantinople in 381, uh, thinking and reflecting deeply on the Trinity. Uh, but that's also not how those councils worked in the fourth century. Uh, we could talk about that if you wanted to, uh, but that's that's a different way of thinking of conciliar activity in the fourth century as opposed to looking back on it mm. from maybe even the fifth century, the way the Council of Chalcedon can look back to the authority of Nicaea and Constantinople is different than the way the, the fathers gathered at Nicaea and Constantinople mm. were thinking about it. Uh, so no, the argument doesn't really work to say that uh, the church gave us this. Uh, it doesn't work theologically, for starters, uh, since it is the word that creates faith, and faith comes by hearing. We're going to need the word before we have what we would think of right. as the body of Christ or the church. It's the word that gives us the church. It is exactly the word that gives us the church, yeah. 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 So we keep talking about those books that are kind of like on the edges yeah. and such. You know, We've talked about the ones that were explicitly rejected by uh, universally, everybody everywhere, gospel of... Thomas, uh, Gospel of Judas, everybody recognizes, even in you know uh, the early centuries of the church, these are not uh, authoritative uh, mm. works. But there are those that are kind of a little bit fuzzy. Um, so how, how does that process work? What does it look like uh, for those to actually end up in our Bible? Um, and maybe some that don't, like say the shepherd of Hermas doesn't, but Revelation does. Yeah. Um, and I'll use Eusebius to explain this, but we, in the same way, I, that, that's what I thought you were going to do in the same way. Yeah. I could tell uh, you had that look <laughs> on your face and it was the, the Eusebius, like Eusebius look. Yeah. Uh, very pious look. Um, just as Athanasius represents, we would say the church in Alexandria, uh, and say Augustine is, is witnessing the church in North Africa. You know, so too with Eusebius. We don't want to invest these figures and say they're speaking for everybody. This is how everybody right. thought. This is the, the voice of the church. Eusebius is important, though, because the reformers appealed to him. Now, what Eusebius does, it's in his church history. I don't have the citation off the top of my head, but in his church history, he takes up this question of, well, what are the canonical writings? And he gives a framework to think through this, and I think it's very helpful. He identifies a first group of books in the New Testament we're talking about. He says, everybody confesses these. Everyone acknowledges their authority. And in that group, he has the four Gospels, and he has Paul's writings and letters. Uh, he has First Peter and First John, and... Uh, Oddly enough, he says some people would put Revelation here, uh, but he's also going to put Revelation in another category, so it's a little strange with Eusebius. But the point is, he says, listen, these writings, and if you think about it, I don't know what the percentage would be, but that's that's got to be, what, like 80% of the New Testament, in right. a sense, if not more. He says everybody agrees. Nobody has any disagreement on that. And then he says there's an, another category, and here they are disputed, and yet they're also authoritative. So they're not authoritative in the way this first group is, where there's perfect consensus. Nobody's questioning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for example, or Acts. But there are a few other writings where most agree 
they're authoritative, but it doesn't have that same universal consensus. And there he lists basically what I left out. He lists Second Peter, Second and Third John, James, uh, Revelation, Philemon, Jude would be in there. Uh, those uh, maybe actually maybe he doesn't list Philemon there. I'm sorry. It might be uh, Jude that he has in that category. But the point is, he recognizes that there is some disagreement. Some people would recognize those and say, absolutely, they are part of the, the canon. Others would say, I'm not sure about it. And then his third category is what he would say are apocryphal works. These are works that are clearly outside of the canon. Doesn't mean they're not useful, and perhaps could you could have value in reading them, but they're not authoritative in the way that these other two are. Right. Well, the Reformers... Uh, see that distinction, and now they're mostly using this polemically against what Trent has done, and they simply say that the church has always recognized that there's a certain hierarchy even within the New Testament. Now, they see that the writings that we have today in our New Testament, basically, they're, they're all authoritative, but we also recognize there's a certain order there, and we privilege the Gospels, and we privilege Acts and Paul's letters and First Peter and First John, and we, if we encounter any difficulty, think of the difficulty that a lot of people have today when they read James. They read James, and they're like, well, is James saying something different than what Paul was saying? Well, in the early church, we have examples of this. And they say, well, no, he's not. Uh, but we also read James through the lens of Paul. And the, way the reason they're doing that is because everybody knows that Paul's authoritative, and most people think James is too, and there's not going to be any contradiction because Scripture doesn't contradict itself. Right. And so that would be an example of how, or even something like Revelation, which is full of difficult uh, text. Well, how do I make sense of this? You do so in light of Scripture, which is to say in light of the clearer Scriptures that everyone recognizes as authoritative. Right, right. Yeah. So how then... Uh, do some of these books, you know, end up to, to dip into Reformation and difference between Protestants and Catholics a little bit more? How, mm. how do the Catholics end up with the Apocrypha included and Protestants exclude? The, the debate on the Apocrypha goes back to the early church, and it has to do with the Septuagint and then the Hebrew Scriptures. So if you're engaging the Old Testament and your only way of engaging it is through the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation— right. Well, that Greek translation included these deuterocanonical or apocryphal works, things like the Wisdom of Solomon, for example. Uh, well, when someone like Jerome, who is translating the Vulgate, the Latin, uh, he doesn't translate the Septuagint into Latin. He goes back to the Hebrew because he also knows Hebrew. And he then sees that there are several works that we only have in Greek that we don't have in Hebrew, again, what we call the Apocrypha, so he translates them, but he doesn't give them the same canonical status and authority as he does the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Right. Uh, people like Augustine, uh, he's not so sure about that, and he, he's not really clear on... Sometimes he'll talk of the apocryphal works as authoritative. Sometimes he'll recognize that some people dispute it. Um, but by the time you get into the 16th century, because those works are also part of the Vulgate, they're recognized by Roman Catholics as authoritative. Uh, the Reformers are again engaging the Old Testament through the Hebrew, and they adopt Jerome's reading, that those works are valuable. They are valuable for teaching morality or maybe valuable for the liturgy, but they don't have the same authority for teaching doctrine as the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament as we uh, as we have it. So that debate goes back to the early church. They were aware of these right. differences uh, there, they, in fact, we could maybe even talk more about difference for them, which is a little different for us in terms of textual difference. Uh, but by the time you get to the, the uh, Reformation, Luther includes the Apocrypha in his translation of the, uh, the Bible, uh, but again, borrows from Jerome to recognize these are useful books, but they're not authoritative right. in the way that the canonical scriptures are authoritative. Right, right, yeah. Um, so when we talk about this, we talk primarily about the New Testament. Mm. You know, um, it, why is that? Is it because we just know less about uh, Old Testament canonization, or is it because as Christians we automatically recognize and accept the same canon that was recognized and accepted by Jews in the first century, affirmed by Christ? Like, what? Why does this conversation tend to be mostly New Testament? 
in some sense, if you if you think the New Testament discussion is complicated, the Old <laughs> Testament one is a little bit more complicated, which is why we don't talk about right, it. Right, 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 um, right, right. <laughs> the, the simple answer to that uh, is for for many years, for many years, people were taught that there was a council held at Jamnia that established the Old Testament canon. Right. Uh, I, I was taught that in my freshman year at a secular university. Right. Well, we now know that not to be true. Uh, and yet, for for generations, but it was But they told me it was fact. Right. Right. <laughs> and a lot of people sort of thought that. Well, the, no, the Old Testament is a lot like the New Testament. And so, if you think uh, to sort of Luke 24 and how we have the three... Uh, parts of the Old Testament. We have the the law, the prophets, the writings as an example. The law and the prophets are fairly settled, just as we might say the Gospels and the writings of Paul. You know, no one's disputing any of that. The disputes are on what we might call those Catholic epistles, you know, which ones are in, which ones are we just not sure about. In the same way, the writings function in that way. Is Esther in or is Esther out? Uh, what do we think of uh, Lamentations or Baruch? How do we how do we fit that uh, with Jeremiah? Those are the kinds of questions we're dealing with here. You know, is Ezra and Nehemiah two books or one book sort of thing? Right, so right, right. Uh, I don't want people to think that we have big issues here. They're really smaller than you think, and yet there's not a lot of clarity on it. So by the time you get into some of the early references that we have to the Old Testament, first and second century, uh, it looks like again on the edges. There's not a lot of, uh, there's not firm clarity in the same way that we've been talking about. Is Third John in or out sort of thing? But by the time you get to the fourth century, that does seem to be settled. Uh, that you have a clear sense. So when we're talking about these canonical lists, they're not just listing the New Testament; they're also listing the Old Testament. Uh, as well. Uh, the ordering of books is a little bit different, right? Um, but uh, the number of books, it's again, it's small things right there on the edge. Are they in or are they, they out? The Old Testament, though, it's not. The, the New Testament is being, in some sense, established over against the Gnostic claims mm. with these apocryphal Gospels and so forth. They're Marcion, who's undermining aspects of the New Testament. Uh, and so that's where a lot of the energy is is being applied. It's not as much on the Old Testament uh, front, but you can find that uh, again. You know, Jerome talks about it. Origen talks about it. Some of these other figures do. So, by the time we get to the Reformation and we get the Protestant response to the Council of Trent, all of that, how does the idea like like when when does it um. I don't know, really solidify that the canon is closed. Like, I mean, can I really just step into the 1400s, like just before the Reformation, and there's not an idea of a closed canon? Is there this idea that there's a dynamic and potentially open canon? Like, we find new letter from Paul, absolutely affirmed. It's Paul's letter. It's 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 the missing letter he sent to the Corinthians that he references, and we don't know what happened to. We find that. Is this yeah. coming into the canon? Like, what is that? Okay, so those, those are two questions. Let me take the second one uh, first. If we find, you know, the letter to the Laodiceans or something like that, how would we know that it was written by Paul? And honestly, we would go back to the same kind of insights Irenaeus was using to talk about how we know these books are in as opposed right. to they're out. Well, we would want to we'd want to be confident of the authorship. Mm-hmm. So one of the uh, the insights that Irenaeus gives us is that when we think of the writings of the New Testament as being authoritative, they need to have been written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle, right? right? So Mark is in because of Peter sort of thing, and, and Luke and Paul and so forth are, are connected. So we would want to establish the authority of Paul. We would then, uh, and we would do that basically uh, by looking at the language of the letter, comparing that you know to the, the language of his other letters. But then we would say, it must actually conform to the rule of faith. That's, that's kind of what Irenaeus is talking about, this rule or canon of truth, that it's going to express what we find elsewhere in scriptures. Now, that's kind of a circular argument, uh, but if we find a letter, for example, uh, from, uh, from Paul, and we, we decide we're very confident that Paul wrote it, but now all of a sudden it's saying something that we don't see anywhere else in scripture. In fact, saying something that would make us depart from some other parts of scripture, mm-hmm. it would be rejected outright. That couldn't happen, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, that we would not find something that would not be in continuity and unity 
with the current scriptures we have. So that means even if we were to discover a new letter, while it would be neat to have another letter, we're not going to learn anything more than we already have, mm-hmm. right? We're not going to discover more about the third heaven in this other letter, right? We already, Paul's already said, can't say, don't have the ability to say, and that's it, right? That's all we're going to, uh, to get. So on that front, uh, is it possible? Well, sure, it's possible, uh, but whatever we would find would only further support what we already have and know. Uh, the question of the closed canon I, uh, again, I think that that really is the product of what Trent has done in establishing its authoritative list. I think it's remarkable that the Lutherans, uh, in responding in part to Trent with their authoritative Book of Concord, do not feel compelled to then offer up their list. And they don't do it in part out of principle, because who has the authority to do that? It's God's word. And therefore, God determines the authority of his word. God doesn't look to the church to determine the authority of his word. It's the church that stands under that word. So in theory, the Lutherans of the 16th and 17th century, for example, uh, were comfortable with, I guess, what we would call an open canon. They wouldn't really, they're not thinking of sure, it in that sure. way. Uh, but what they are saying is we haven't the authority to say, well, that's it, right? Uh, it's closed. Now, when you get closer to the 20th century, that is sort of the common sentiment among everybody, mm-hmm. right? We don't expect there to be any other authoritative writing, and for all intents and purposes, this is our canon, and therefore, not only are all of these works authoritative, so now we're even moving beyond Eusebius's distinction, this idea of kind of a you know, an, an ordered relationship between what everyone agrees upon and what some, we're, we're even beyond that now, right? We, we know that these are just all authoritative, and for all intents and purposes, it is a, a closed canon. Now, you could say, you could argue that that's just kind of an organic reality, that this is these are the scriptures the church has had, this is what we've grown accustomed to, and therefore, we could use the language of closed without having to point to something like Trent, some sort of, you know, uh, gathering in a, in a council to say, well, it's closed. Right. Because it actually is sort of functionally closed. We're not operating with this idea that there's something else out there for us to discover, uh, and we don't need anything more. Mm-hmm. So as we talk about all the different aspects of canonization, uh, it can't help but strike me how different it is from when we look at uh, other religions that have sacred texts. I'm specifically thinking of things like, say, um, the the Book of Mormon. It's kind of like you know, just these miraculous golden plates, divinely delivered, you know. Or thinking about the Quran, which is dictated, you know, to singular author Muhammad, you know, and it's the very words of God, not taking into account, you know, like author's personality or or any of those kinds of things. Um, what we get with scripture seems so much messier. It's not clean. It is very fuzzy on the edges and things like that, like that. So what do you think this topic of canonization, what do you think it teaches us? Uh, two questions about God, the kind of God that we have and about the church. Hmm. Well, I, I like how you put that. It is a little messy uh, the scriptures, and let me come at this from a different angle. Uh, I expected that. We, we recently <laughs> talked about this in, in class that, and I don't, and I, I want to be careful in saying this, right? I, 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 I'm not exactly sure who listens to these sorts of podcasts, but... Uh, oh, we have a massive audience. <laughs> right. So I, I say this carefully because I'm not interested, I don't want anyone to, to think that I'm undermining their confidence in the scriptures. That's not what I'm doing here. That's mm-hmm. not what I'm trying to describe. But today, most people can go to a bookstore and they can grab uh, their Beeson approved ESV off the shelf. And they can go home and they have, you know, you know Genesis to the maps, as Dr. Divine likes to, uh, to call it, the inspired Word of God. They do have the Word of God in their very hands, no doubt about it. But there's been a lot of work to get us to that point, a lot of scholarly academic work to get us to that point. Mm-hmm. Now, what I mean by that is the ESV is based on what scholars would call a critical edition of 
the Old and New Testament. Right. Now, a critical edition has is is aiming to establish the most reliable text that we can. Well, how do you do that? Well, you take all of the manuscripts and all of the papyri that you have, you read over them, and you put together a definitive critical edition based on all of those sources. Right. Now, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But it also means that there is no manuscript that stands behind the modern translations of Scripture. Uh, the King James is a little bit different. It has a different manuscript history where it can, in fact, point to something like that. So what that means is that people today, when they have their Bible in hand, they have, I think, this idea about the certainty of that particular text that isn't quite the way someone like Augustine, I'll just pick Augustine, had, because Augustine didn't have that luxury in his day. So what Augustine talks about all the time is he has all of the different Latin manuscripts and the Greek manuscripts in front of him, and he's going through them, making sure that you know he's got the right text and that when there is a variant, meaning where there's a slight change in wording, and generally no, these do not amount to anything, right, it's just right. a very slight thing, Augustine wrestles with that, and you know he he has an answer to this that might not satisfy people today, but his answer to it is that uh, there's probably value in all of these these variants because they're all aiming toward the same truth of who Christ is and what He's done for us. Uh, and obviously, if a variant uh, takes us away from Christ, it's there's a mistake that's involved here. So, when we think of canon today, to finally get to your question. We're thinking of it differently than they would have in the early church, and I think also during the Reformation. And there is almost a sense, I think, in which people are, are looking to it as a way of providing greater certainty for what they know to be true. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That's maybe motivated in a, in a healthy way. Um, but it is a little misleading, right? The certainty that we have is that this is the Word of God. Right. And we have the wonderful gift of the, the long history of his church, which includes the Old Testament, recognizing the authoritative word of God and how that word changes us, how that word guides and directs us. Now, with that said, this word of God has been written down by many people for many years, and there are small changes here and there that can arise. And it's, it's helpful then for pastors to go to places like Beeson to delight in learning Hebrew and Greek, and to be handed, you know, in their Hebrew and Greek uh, Bible, a critical apparatus, so they can kind of see what maybe some of those small variants are, and if they're at all significant, which trust me, most of them are not, uh, but if they are, you can now explain that in your particular context to the people reading the scriptures, and that's wonderful, and that's a good thing for us to do. Now, I think that's what you're getting at when you say it's a little messy, and it's true. Now, why is it then that we have to even deal with that, right? Why, why is it that God hasn't given us—I mean, isn't it the case that—and uh, I could be wrong, but isn't it the case that Muslims have this idea that there are no variations with the Quran? There are no textual variants. It's all the same, and it was sort of directly given. Well, that's convenient. I mean, I think we do know that, uh, <laughs> that that's not the case. We, we do have manuscripts of the Quran that, that show textual variants. Sure. Uh, and, you know, this might get censored and taken off the air for even saying something like that, but uh, that is the case. That's true, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, why is that? Well, I'll tell you, one of the reasons I think that is, is the case is that, you know, God recognizes that, that his ways are not our ways and his wisdom is not our wisdom. And it's a humbling thing, right? We can never stand over the scriptures, and God makes that point in so many different ways, right? That we we stand below the scriptures. And, you know, one of the things that, for me, I, I always find this really encouraging, is that how do I know, like someone will come to me, well, how do you know that's the Word of God? Because we wouldn't have written it that way, right? We, we would have gotten rid of all of those embarrassing moments throughout the scriptures, all of the sins, of the patriarchs and the prophets. I mean, are you kidding me? You think we're going to keep the argument between Peter and Paul and Galatians? Right. Oh, that's out. That's right. embarrassing. We can't have that in there. God says, yep, that's going in, right? That's another way in which we begin to see how easy it is, even for the faithful, to twist God's word. We need that in there. 
we need to be reminded of that. And we need to be thankful that we have people like Paul that can correct people like Peter. And we can be thankful for Peter too, right? So in my mind, one of the beauties of Scripture and the messiness of it is a real gift from God. It makes us wrestle with his word, makes us always stand under his word and be appreciative for it. And it's God's way of showing us that he's always at work, even through the messiness of our lives, even through the messiness of things that we might struggle with in the scriptures, he continues to convey his truth to us. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Beckwith, um, did you have anything else that you were just dying to share with us about uh, about the canine? I've, I've, run, I've gotten to the, that was the last of my questions, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Um, no, I don't know if I have anything uh, to really share about the canon, but, you know, it's, it's a great thing to be thinking about. I'm glad you're doing a podcast on it. And, you know, I hope what it does is it encourages people to actually read the Bible, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a text that has fascinated the, the greatest minds throughout the history of the world, uh, and it should fascinate us too. And it's something that requires patience, mm-hmm. Right. Let me actually add this. I'll say this. Okay. I'll say this because see, I'm a stubborn patristics guy, which means that I, I live basically prior to the Reformation in all of my reading, which means that I'm pre-modern and I'm, I'm not sophisticated in, in any of the things that I think or say. Uh, I just really like those simple guys before, uh, before we learned everything with modernity. And one of the things that I most appreciate about them is how seriously they took the inspiration of Scripture. Now, we say it, we all say it, this is God's inspired word. They really meant it. Mm. Now, what do I mean by that? They wrestle with the details. They wrestle with every word. Every word that you encounter was given to us by God. Now, if you've ever read Scripture, it gets repetitive. It gets wordy. Mm. uh, It seems to say things it doesn't need to say. Mm. Our reaction to that typically is, well, we'll just move on. Let's just keep on. Okay, I got it. The church fathers, they could not move on. They would always ask that question. Well, why did God put it that way? Why did God use, you know, obviously this human author to say it in that way? Why be so repetitive? Why, uh, why use these extra words or why not use this? And for me, that's just an indication of the way in which they took so seriously the inspiration of Scripture. These are, in fact, God's words that he has made known to us. He hasn't answered every question we could bring to the table. That doesn't mean our question isn't good. It just means that we don't apparently need to have it answered right, right now. We right. just need to be a little patient. It'll get answered eventually. But he does answer what we need to know, and we should, we should marvel over that word, Old Testament and New Testament. Don't just go to the New Testament because you think it's all clear and all the answers are right there. Uh, they are, but so too they're in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and, and we, can, we can wrestle through the beauty of those scriptures. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, one final question that did come to mind is if people want to dive in to the things we've been talking about a little bit more, do you have any recommended resources uh, or books? Yeah, there's, there's, uh, I don't have the title exact, but anyone could find it. Uh, a recent book published by Oxford by two authors, and it's entitled something like uh, Canon Lists in the Early Church. Mm. Uh, and it has everything in it. it uh, it's really a helpful book that will take you through every author uh, who's ever made mention of the books in the Old and New Testament in terms of a list of them, oftentimes providing the Greek or the Latin and the translation. Uh, so that would be kind of a, a really hefty resource if you really want to get deeper uh, into this. Gotcha. Well, Dr. Beckwith, we thank you so much for your time. Um, and this has been uh, a lot of fun. And, I, you know, I mean, it wasn't, nothing was new for me having sat in your class and memorized everything you ever said and just taking it deep into my heart, you know, but I'm thankful for everybody else that you're able to, to share these things. Um, I think my sense of sarcasm is completely No, I, I agree. I agree. And, you know, I too, I hope that everyone could be more like you, as you said. <laughs> oh, no, but seriously, thank you for, for your time and for um, the work that you do. Um, it's... Uh, valued and um, yeah we just appreciate you thank you appreciate it thanks for having me